Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Want to get right to it today? I don't think John Waite needs that much of an introduction. We all are very familiar with his prestigious solo career. He was in The Babies, he was in Bad English, he toured with Ringo's All Stars. He's a terrific new collection out called Wooden Heart Volumes 1 to 3, which feature acoustic versions of songs of his that you know and some great chestnuts of others that he's done. He's a terrific guy and a wonderful storyteller. Let's get right to my conversation on the moment with John Waite. John, the first thing, I mean, you know, in terms of uh, artists have taken uh, a big hit in the last year, year and a half, obviously, not yeah. being able to be on the road, not being able to be out yeah. um, doing what you do um, as an artist. What's it been like for you? And what's the adjustment been like to have to kind of reconfigure how you how you meet an audience, how you perform and all those sorts of things, how you communicate with an audience and stay in touch? Well, the last year with the... Uh the pandemic it was just a uh, game changing really everything stopped i usually have the uh, luxury of going out with a band and playing music and uh, communicating and uh, this part of me that's like a lone wolf that can spend a lot of time by himself and there's another part of me that's it that needs to communicate and sing these songs and and um get to people nobody writes songs to keep them in their back pocket you know so that was taken away i thought immediately i would write a record and even have a crack at a novel i thought i would um but what happened was everything stopped without um without having people to uh exchange ideas with or get input or output or whatever um it just stopped and um i read a lot uh, I've been plowing through two or three books a week. What kind of things are you reading? Well, at the moment, it's Hemingway. Um, I'd, I'd read A Farewell to Arms 30 years ago and just didn't get it. And then I read again 10 years ago and didn't finish it, but liked it better. And then I found an old copy in a second-hand bookshop in Santa Monica. I read the whole thing about um, three years ago, and I was just knocked out it took me uh, a long time to have the maturity i think and the objectivity to be open to that style of writing but it was completely brilliant <clears throat> and over the last you know i read um for whom the bell tolls about eight months ago and then i just got movable feast and i got um the sun also rises which is a profoundly interesting uh stimulating book i mean it's just really profoundly insightful that's my favorite of his yeah i think that the just the fact that you could have a hero that's in love with the with brett the female lead and he's impotent and he and he's like i mean what does that mean you know i mean so what what hemingway is trying to put out there is this i mean it's so odd and it's dark you know uh have you read, much, John, much about Hemingway, aside from his fiction, have you read much about his life and, and sort of what he was going through? And Well, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm quite familiar with it in, in, a, in the same way, not as much as I will be after tonight. There's a, there's a, a six-part or a three-part uh, PBS documentary mm -hmm. coming on tonight. I'm going to try and find that. But um, there's a danger of, uh, I always find things like that, like Jimi Hendrix or... Keith, or whatever it is, Dylan, if you go behind the curtain, you're going to be thinking about that when you're reading his work. The work should be separate from the person. It's like I just finished a book on Chet, uh, Chet Baker, mm -hmm. who was like, um, I mean, what a guy. Yeah, and amazing. Yet, yeah, um, but what a talent and uh, what a brutal life he had. And I don't want to really necessarily listen to Chet Baker and think about all the sordid, chunky, the, the, I mean, just what a life. I just want to listen to Chet. There's that thing. So I'm going to watch it because I've, I've just about read everything now. 
So Ken, Ken, Ken Burns does a nice job, I think, when he um, when he approaches a subject like that. I think that's the one that's on tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. That it should be very thorough and but but you bring up a really good point, I think, about separating artists from the art. And and the more you know, you yeah. watch Woody, Woody Allen comes to mind today. Yeah. Case in point. Exactly. Where do you reevaluate? I mean, I you know, if you grow up in New York, you know, Woody Allen is sort of the poet laureate of yeah. you know, neuroses and comedy and all that. Yeah. And and films like Woody Allen, I mean Annie Hall and Hannah and her sisters and all that are brilliant films. Um, and I know a lot of people today are struggling with, yeah. you know, how do they, <laughs> how do they stick with that? And yeah. uh, it, it, have you thought about, have you ever, um, you haven't written your memoir yet? No, I've been avoiding it. Uh, the most, uh, I, I read somebody, well, somebody sent me a couple of pages of some guy that just did a memoir and it was just bullshit. It was all lies. And I just. A, a wait I, about you? you? You mean? Yeah, I was in the book and it was just somebody's convenient version you know, painting over the cracks of their personality thing, you know, and I just thought, well, that's what, I mean, the Keith Richards one was very good. And um, uh, the guy from the band. Uh, Robbie Robertson. No, no. the Levon Helm. No, Robbie Robertson, you're right. Yeah. And uh, that was very well written. And the Dylan one was enthralling, you know, I was. Uh, well, I'll tell you, if you've never read the Levon Helm one, that was, that's an older one. And that really, to me, kicked off this sort of golden age of music memoirs. We're in this, everyone's writing, but Levon Helms was brutally honest and, and took people to task that he needed to and, you know, settled a lot of scores. It's, and, and he's a great, he was a great writer as well. Um, I liked Robbie Robertson's as well, but Levon's, if you ever get a chance, is a really- I'll try it, yeah. It's just, it's just um, I, I saw a documentary on him a couple of months ago and he's in the front of the bus talking to the drivers, they're going through the night. And he, he purposely brings up how they're going to get there and leave on counts of all the highways and the turnoffs and the truck stops and how they'll get in at a certain time. And that's, I thought that was like a man that's, that's lived so much on the road that it's so authentic, you know. It isn't anything to do with the showbiz. It's just being a wandering spirit, you know. Well, even, and when he when he left the band for a time and then was down in the Gulf working on oil rigs out in the what a way to go. yeah I mean it's a whole other, and he writes about that and it's a whole other experience it's not all about music if you were to ever do that how do you think you would approach it would it be an uh, you know fully bearing everything um, well there's certain things like John Lennon said at one point that we're trying to get him to do a really young winner was trying to get him to to talk about all the women and the sex and the drugs. And he said, why would I want to hurt Yoko? And, uh, you know, and kiss and tell is, um, is a, you know, it's, there's something about that. That's just trashy, you know, well, you I, have, but, but again, you can still be brutally honest. I think Dylan's was a good example of how you can focus on what you want to focus on the music in a lot of cases and what you got, what got you there without having to, with, with, with you know, care and consideration and thinking about people that are still around today that yeah. you don't need to necessarily expose on any level. But, but if you were to do it and look at, like, for instance, let's go back. Well, you, what was the, what was the moment, John, in your life? Was there an epiphany where you realized this is what you were going to do? Was there a show you saw? Was there a record you heard? Was there something yeah. that provided some illumination? When I was a little kid, I, there was a record store called Kenneth Gardner's that I had to walk past on my way to get the bus to go home in the middle of Lancaster. And um, I was only about six. But Marty Robbins had an album in the window called Trails, Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs. And I, I used to stand there, I used to run out of school as fast as I could, so I'd have an extra 10 seconds to look at this thing. And there's Marty Robbins on the cover drawing a gun, you know, and it was like, and it was hot pink, which was kind of sexy, although I didn't know what sexy was, you know, it's like, um, but uh, there was a chord change that came up when me and my brother used to watch the test card in the afternoons, we had nothing to do. We were in a tiny cottage and there was no TV programs on. There was only two stations, but they used to have the test card for engineers to tune in the TV mm -hmm. and play music behind it. And there was this one song that came up that was like the Magnificent Seven, where it went from like an A to an F. And my whole writing style is based on that. And uh, so these things come to you. 
I mean, I was always keenly aware of music and guitars, and it was a big part of my family. And um, but there was a time much later when I was about seventeen, I was listening to a Humble Pie record, and Come On Everybody, Smoking, and I I couldn't afford to buy it. I had no money, but my one of my best friends had it, and Come On Everybody came on, and Marriott's playing the tremendous rhythm guitar plays up there with Keith Richards and Townsend and he was <laughs> right in the pocket and the hair on the back of my head stood up like like a cold like an ice pick going in the back of my head and I just knew that I was at art school then then I was going to be a painter and I just knew that was that was gone you know whatever it took I was going to be playing music if it meant playing the banjo on a street corner or wow. playing Madison Square Garden you know what a moment was there um, was there a first live show that you saw, John, growing up that then made it real physically for you, viscerally, where you could see it live? Yeah, there was a band called Family that came from Leicester. They were a jazz rock band, and they had this singer called Roger Chapman, and um, they were and Rick Gretsch was the bass player. Wait, is this uh, the one that Dave Mason produced the first? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. And uh, they came and played the refectory at the local university. I was about. 15 I was still at school and it was I, I actually wrote about it for um Kerrang it's like your first gig that's like but it was the most profound experience they were all dressed like they came from the south they were all crushed velvet pants and shiny brown boots that had studs in them and gypsy shirts and there's Chapman with his hair shaved off and he had this this voice like a bleat and it was this, the lyrics were all very trippy, and but it was profoundly uh, musical, but and not very accessible. The record wasn't accessible. No, yet, it's a, but they're they're really an unsung band. That's I think it's a fascinating well, a of, record. A lot of people, I saw them twice in my life, <laughs> and it was almost a religious experience the first time, and the second was they were on a much bigger stage when they played the Great Hall at the university, and I didn't quite get it as much, but I followed them. I was a disciple of that. Wow. I really, really moved me. That yeah. is really something. You know, again, I'm actually currently writing a book, Dave Mason's book with him. Oh, great. He's a great guy. He's wonderful. And Can you tell off to me if you see him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'll talk to him later this morning. And I'll do, oh, you, do, that'd be great. You know, he, um, but that album, producing that album for him, he's coming right out of traffic. Yeah. So he's got some cachet, you know. And he likes that album as well. And it's, um, he, he, I think he, uh, he values it as a really interesting experience for him. It was his first production credit, you right. know, and it was a bit of a handful to get done, but, uh, but he loves the record and still speaks following of it. So I love the fact that it influenced you on that level. That's a, that's a really big deal. Yeah, I, I had to wait six months for the record to come out. And then I saved up every, every penny I had and I went down to Kenneth Gardner's and, uh, and I bought it and, uh, I remember my dad coming home from work and said, what are you listening to? I said, family. He put his head around the bedroom door and I held up the back of the cover and there's a doll on a tricycle. And uh, he said, that's very evocative, isn't it? And I went like, yeah, dad. And um, he stood there and listened for a while. But it was all tied into like English folk and rock and, and jazz. Yeah, know? it was very progressive. I think it's one of the first progressive albums. When you it's think of yeah. Yeah, Wrong, you know, it yeah, really is. Yeah, in a yeah. doll's house, it was called, right? Yeah, yeah, music in a doll's house. The Beatles were going to call the White House, right. and they didn't because the family. Oh, it was Sgt. Pepper, maybe. I don't know. It's one of those records. I th that was the White Album. That was that's, that's was one of the great rock and roll anecdotes is that family sort of cribbed or had first the album title, which is really a great piece of trivia. John, where does it go from there? I mean, are you, were you as a young person now, which right, it's before Old Grey Whistle Test, right? That's not quite. No, we had, um, we had something else called, um, what was it called? There was a beautiful brunette girl, introduced it. It was on Friday nights, 11 o'clock, BBC Two. Um, but yeah, it was before whistle test, but you know, it was that wonderful period where you couldn't find anything. The BBC were banning singles. If, if you were, if you, if there were any kind of sexual 
uh, nuance to them or if they were against the establishment, the BBC would immediately ban them. So you couldn't turn on the radio and hear anything. It was it was a village of, of minds. There was people who lived a mile away that were listening to certain records and you would, you know, get to know them naturally because you, you're obsessed with the same kind of music. And um, the, the radio and TV had a huge way to go before it was accessible. So it was underground. Everything was profoundly underground. You had, to, you had to seek it out. Yeah, and it was all coffee bars. It was like, I remember when I was about 15, being sort of accepted into the coffee bar society that was all art students and bohemians. And we always go to Ed's coffee bar on Saturday afternoon and get a cappuccino and sit in a corner and listen to the jukebox. And it was like Bob Dylan, Martha and the Vandellas, the Beatles, you know. But it was it was so... You know, owning a pair of 501s, Levi's, was like the card of, of coolness. If you could get like a Levi's shirt, it was beyond, you know, it was like America was just seeping into our consciousness and uh, it was all raw and all new. And obviously what happens in Britain is that a lot of that culture is played back to us in a way, whether we start with the blues, with what the Beatles and Stones did, and we begin, America begins to reappreciate what England is doing with, with mm. American culture. It's this great sort of back and forth yeah. where it's being reinvented, you know, yeah. back and forth, getting better and better. Yeah. How, what, were, what were your thoughts during sort of the early glam movement when we started to see T-Rex and Bowie and Mott? Was it something that intrigued you? Well, Mott was good. And T-Rex was great. You know, I mean, Telegram Sam. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and he was in Tyrannosaurus Rex before that playing sort of like spacey folk music. I mean, <laughs> it was all legit, even though it was overdressed. Uh, Slayed, you know, they had some great songs. Noddy Holder could really yeah. bash his way through a song, you know. Um, Bowie was in the front of that Roxy Music. I mean, I remember seeing Roxy Music in Lancaster at the university. And I remember Brian Ferry coming out in a different jacket for the encore. And it's something I've, I've used. I thought, you know, everybody just ran back out. And he came out with this sort of like space jacket on and he's, you know, and a, and a towel. Like, you know, he, he'd just been back to change into this space outfit. <laughs> and I remember thinking, ah, you know. How I, cool. Yeah, if, I, if, I have, if I ever get in front of an audience, I'm going to do, do that. Because they all think, wow, he's gone back there. And he, he really looks like that when he's off stage, you know. But he was a clever guy. Virginia Plan. You know, Avalon, what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful record. Oh, marvelous. No, marvelous. But that's amazing how you picked up little cues like that, dramatic stage cues. Yeah. That you knew you could possibly, yeah. you know. Use I was at a rock festival and the Faces were playing and this roadie came out and said, Rod would like to say hello to Gypsy something, something and his family. And then walked off. And Rod was probably, he probably didn't know anybody, but it was a great way of saying that he was hip to the audience. And I remember thinking, Rod, you know, just just stuff that's, uh, it throws wood on the fire. You know, it, it perpetuates the experience at a higher level. You know, there's more. So when, you, when you begin performing, how are you, what's it like for you thinking about all these influences you're tapping into? What, what are the first stages like for you with the band? Um, you know, when you first get going, um, how much are you sort of relying on what you've seen growing up and how much are you looking ahead to develop your own style? Well, I, had, I, I was a bass player. I was just fascinated by bass. Right. Cellos, bass, viola, double bass. I was, I was a born bass player. And I was in other people's bands or I was in a band where I was just singing the, the odd blues song and, uh, you know, it wasn't like Johnny in the middle, you know. I was trying to stay in, off to the side and play, you know. And um, I didn't have a routine. I dressed the way I dressed, you know. I mean, I always, you know, if, if I never had any money, but I always kind of dressed in a way that uh, it was an entire experience, the whole thing. I... Um, I didn't have anything rehearsed. You know, when the babies came to America and we were heavily on the road, it was all kind of like learning to be a front man and learning to drive the band on, which I always did anyway. You know, I was a natural really, but I had a very shy nature. So I think it was a, probably it looked like I was a bass player, you know, it wasn't like I was Rod Stewart. And um, that, 
there was a, a slight prog aspect to the babies. You know, we'd go off and jam for 20 minutes and stuff. I don't think people realize that. I, I think it's funny. You're exactly right. But that's, I think that aspect of the babies is, is not recognized a lot, that there was something a bit more freeform. People yeah. know what they know. You know, they know yeah. the hits and they know the, yeah. the structure. But there definitely was uh, a lot of room to play in there as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we were learning as we went. But uh, the, the musicality, I mean, I was into bands like Golden Earring. And you have something like Moontown, which is a, 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 a gigantic record. You know, I mean, Barry Hay and uh, George Coomans, you know, I mean, it's like to actually have a lyric that says she's got a pimp named Ted. And it's a pop song. It's a rock pop. It's just like, what? You know, and that had a huge impact on me because it was before punk. And there was bands like Mott the Hoople that were, were singing about having no heater in the van when they're going to a gig. You know, it was it was becoming more and more like verite, more like did you, read, about, did you read Ian Hunter's yeah, memoir yeah, back then? Yeah. That's another one that to me is is real I I'm rereading it again right now. Um I've probably read it five or six times in yeah, my life. And it never too. really there's always something fresh in there. Well, it's, it's before it got commercialized. You know, I read that on the way back to Lancaster after I quit a band on a bus. And he was talking about Cleveland and he was talking about the rock radio and uh, and the, 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 the hit shops and getting a great Les Paul Jr. for a hundred bucks yeah. in a pawn shop. And, oh, the and, pawn shop. The pawn shop thing alone, how they would always track down all the pawn yeah. shops. It was brilliant. You know, and I, 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 when I got back to Lancaster, I hadn't got a job, I hadn't got a band, I hadn't got anything. And I got this letter from a singer I'd worked with in London inviting me to Cleveland. So I, uh, about a month later, I was on a plane. But uh, it's just like certain things happened in order. And, and they were suggested before they happened. It was like a fate. And so I went to Cleveland for like four months and played in a band and it all fell apart, but I actually went to the Agora and I, and I watched these bands and I listened to the radio and Kid Leo and all that stuff, you know, and it was a profound, it was a religion, you know, it's the closest I've had to anything that I've consistently believed in all my life was art. And uh, probably the most colorful part of that was music, but uh, it was, you you know, I weighed about 90 pounds because I just didn't have, get enough to eat. And I was like, but I had a great time, you know. Did you, now when you were in Cleveland, would you have stayed at a place called Swingos? I did later with the babies, yeah. I have a, I have a photograph of my TV with a, with, a, with a telephone hanging out of the screen. Um, but Swingos, man, had some great nights in there. John, when you first came through with the babies, what's your touring America for the first time? What did it did it um, meet your expectations of what yeah. you thought that would be like, or did it? Chicago was Chicago. Chicago, you could almost smell Chicago when you got to the city. Back in Cleveland, you knew you were in Cleveland. Houston, L.A., New York, Detroit, all the cities had this incredible identity. They were very, very different, and the people were different. And they were like separate countries. Now I think with um, everything becoming sort of more crowded and, and moved along considerably, that's dissipated, you know. Yeah. And uh, you can't, you, know, you don't really know where you are if you're driving down the road. There's the same, you know, Texaco and McDonald's and Arby's and you know, and it, the 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 America that was uh, from the ground up, mom and pop shops and pawn shops with all the guitars and stuff that seems to be moving away and it has been for a long time but but america like new york city holy god you know i'm just like just wow you know wow yeah well you i mean again you you, you came over in a big way you got to experience it in a way that was very organic at, at a time where you could still you know i always think you know you measure pre-social media and post-social media back uh -huh. when yeah, when good bands point. were bigger than life, you know. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the seventies. You you knew bands from circus, hit parade, and cream, yeah. basically. Yeah. That's how yeah, you yeah. knew it. And if Absolutely. you saw them live, it's like they came down from the mountain just for you. You were in the yeah. same room with them, and then that yeah. was it. They were gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fabulous. Not like as a performer, because you you've been through every real incarnation 
arenas, theaters, pre-social media and post MTV. I mean, you, your, your career has really dovetailed with all the modern generations of rock and you've managed to carry on and do what you do and, and, and create art for, for your fans in, in a very disciplined, um, steady way. What's the transition been like when you start in the mid seventies and you arrive today? Like, what, How do you compare the two different eras? Um, well, like you're talking about pre and post internet, I mean, there's MTV is probably the stumbling block. Yeah. Um, um, you go from Rolling Stones, Circus and Cream to uh, cable TV. And when I first moved to New York, I was crashing in a tiny little studio apartment with a bunch of cockroaches on 72nd Street, sleeping on the floor. And I had this little black and white TV and I had this song out, Change. And suddenly I was getting eight spins a day on MTV and I got to know all the VJs and they were great. Nina Blackwood and all those people were lovely, you know, and we hung out and got drunk and parted and went to the Ritz and all that. But it was very, um, it was still organic and it was still really funky, but MTV was the precursor of what, what was to come. It was really, it's when technology and big business came into the picture and you couldn't argue. It was, that was going to be the new way. It didn't phase me at all because the babies had made a video back in London with our last dollars, whatever, pounds, mm -hmm. to get a record deal. We made a, a video demo. I was very familiar with video. So I stepped right into it. You know, it was like it never phased me. And as far as changing times, you know, the instrumentation might come and go but the songs always stayed the same format. They were always written in the same style. So I think that's had a lot to do with my longevity. It was always, a, I'm not a better songwriter now than I was when I was 18. I'm just the same songwriter with a lifetime of experience. Hmm. So what was it like when the babies, when you, making the transition after that band, um, what was that like for you personally to have to reinvent, to have to figure out what the next phase was gonna be to survive as an artist? Well, I'd, I'd moved to New York. I'd fallen in love with New York on my way back to England from the babies. And um, I met Ivan Kroll, <clears throat> who just uh, was just finishing up uh, his tenure with Iggy Pop, got to meet Iggy mm. and uh, Patti Smith. And me and Ivan, he was Czech, he was, he was European. So me and Ivan, we got on like a house of fire like that. And uh, we'd go and see movies and art movies, go and have dinner, took me for my first Thai meal he, um, on 8th Avenue. He had a tiny little rehearsal studio called Pause uh, in the 30s. Professional art shop workshop, professional art workshop services, Pause. Hmm. And we'd go up there and just write songs. And I think Ivan was a pivotal thing. It, it, without Ivan, it wouldn't have worked. And me and he was Ivan. a great film archivist, right, as well. Didn't he have a, a good collection? Of, what? Of, of early films, I think. Yeah, he, he'd filmed uh, all the, the blues greats and, and rock greats. And everybody, he had, yeah, he had everybody. his archive was incredible. Yeah, yeah, he had, um, he's got a whole set of demos, me and him, well, um, unfortunately he's passed away. Yeah. A couple of years ago that came out of nowhere and it's, you know, really, it was terrible. I I tried to get hold of him. We were, we were going through uh, Ann Arbor and I sent him a text and said, I'm in town. I'm doing laundry and getting some sleep. We leave tomorrow. Let's have dinner. And he only got back to me the next day, next morning when I was leaving. And I, and I, I've always loved Ivan. He came to visit me in England. We always we spent we've been through it, you know. And I just felt something was wrong, mm. you know, because I saw some pictures of him before he passed, and he was obviously on medication, and he was, um, and I think he was embarrassed, but it was sad to see him go. He's a very he's an integral guy. He he's one of those names and in New York City. Yeah. Especially he really was a core part of that whole yeah. um you know authentic music. I mean the, the, you know on on the right side of things played with the yeah. best but but really again I always felt that his uh, as a historian um and what he documented was He's a very intelligent he was a very very intelligent guy. We knew a lot of I mean we went to see Abel Gans's Napoleon and he got two tickets one night said we're going to the movies and I go like yeah but what are you going to and it was at Radio City Hall and we were I, saw, I, I was there as well 
really? Oh, great. And we were in the last row. Like, there's a wall behind us. They must have cost like $10 each. And there's this, you know, Abel Gantz, Napoleon, Artaud is in it. And, you know, it's like, fucking hell. I mean, I knew about Artaud peripherally. You know, I just, I, but I hadn't really, you know, it's French. And if you don't speak French, it's hard to translate. And it's always difficult to translate poetry. And But, um, you know, things like that, you know, it's like... Uh, Years later, I was in MoMA, and I saw an exhibition of Artaud's sketches and drawings and paintings, you know. And I, I was actually moved to tears. There was one that was a self-portrait that he did in a, a mental asylum. And he's looking into, the, into, into his own, he's looking in a mirror and he's paint drawing it, you know. And his eyes, you know, his eyes, what he'd seen and felt, you know. Just, but you know, Ivan would know about that. We both had a thing about performance, the movie, you know. Um, we could, we could, yeah, Nicholas Rogan, we could talk for hours about that. He, he traded me my video cassette of the movie for a paperback book of performance. And he said he had extra footage in that he hadn't got. So I, I let him have it, you know. It was great. I think it's interesting when you describe that kind of relationship where culturally you're being you're exposing each other to things. Yeah. It's probably helping the songwriting process oh, yeah. as well, right? Because you're inspiring yeah. each other, you're turning each other on to things and then when you sit down to write, you've got new experiences you can tap into and, and just things you that you can spark to. Yeah. Uh, that you both appreciate. And and well you know, New York City, I think in the early eighties, people didn't realize how different a city it was back then as well compared yeah. to today. It was rough. It was great. You know, it was, you could, it was a different you could, scene. Uh, you, it was just on fire. You know, it was, everything was everything was turned up as loud as it would go. I mean, uh, John Lennon had died, been assassinated, and that colored the mood of the city. And But there was a tremendous flush of young artists living in the city. It yeah. wasn't, um, there was youth everywhere. There was, there was this poetry, theater, music, there was a, and it was harsh and it was beautiful and the snow would come and the rain would come and you'd be huddled up in some small bar drinking shots of tequila or something you're talking to somebody that you you know would never think you would be talking to it was just such a great there was so much going on i was so fortunate to be there whenever i hear when the the stone the rolling stones song shattered which came in 1978 it's a yeah. great snapshot of what you yeah. was was really yeah. like when it was, it was going bankrupt, but it was still a very, if you, if you liked music and art, it was a great place to be. Well, it was all that thing, especially the Stones at that point, it was all Studio 54, heroin and, and, and cool girls and sort of like, and, and then it was like uh, the Ritz and, you know, it was like this, this decadent thing that was shot through with, with uh, the harshness of, of the street. Um, apparently it's going right back to that now because of the pandemic, but I mean, yeah. it's, it was a violent city. Oh, totally. But you had also the great sort of juxtaposition of Studio 54 and those sorts of clubs, but then downtown, you still had the last vestiges of Max's Kansas City. You had CBGBs, which had become kind of a cultural force. You yeah. didn't have the Mud Club. You had a downtown thing as well. Yeah. That was, that was very, very compelling, that produced a lot of great music and a lot of great I mean, I always think when I think, think of Studio 54, I think of the ye old Triple Inn, which was a, like a, a, a pub opposite the front right door. across the street. Yeah. Yeah. You used to have comedy night. And it was, you'd go in there after a session. The Hit Factory was right next door. But you'd go in like with a guitar player for a couple of drinks before you went home. And you used to have this terrible, like... Uh, anybody could get up and tell jokes. There was a small stage in the corner and you would get people that would like be saying, you know, a duck walks into a bar, <laughs> you know, and there was, there was no punchline. You'd be sitting there like, you know, hey, really, you know, but uh, that was New York. You know, that was like um, black and white all the time and potent, real. It was like, uh, there isn't an equivalent, but it was like maybe Raymond Chandler, kind of like realism happening. Oh, totally. There was a very noir, especially at yeah. night. There was a very yeah. dark sense about the city. It was dangerous for sure, but there was, it was also a lot of fun. And that, yeah. that danger lurking within the danger was um, great opportunities and great yeah. 
wrists yeah. and all sorts of things that made well, it. Well, who dares wins, you know, it's kind of like if you want to go and write music and be in around that situation, nothing's easy if it's good. Jen, as you as you develop in your solo career after that, which which obviously um, I don't have to detail too much, real you know goes big. What's that like for you as an artist to adapt to this new persona where you've got to, where it's all on you? Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, you know. I think I acted badly. I um I felt um I felt embarrassed almost by fame at that that level. I couldn't go out. Yeah, we were on Saturday Night Live, mm -hmm. and I refused to play Missing You. I was I was going to go from the song Saturday Night that was written into Restless Heart right in the middle of this and just blow it all to pieces live on TV. Like and what Elvis got, did a yeah, few years ago. And he got wind of it and uh, said he's going to do one song. And uh, so we did Saturday Night and I said, okay, fuck you. And... Uh, but I mean, I think I, I was, I, you know, I lived it. I was, I didn't really take crap from anybody, but it was like um, that transition from being a hardcore musician, kind of being in New York City, and then everything being kind of somebody, somebody you don't know is calling you darling. And uh, people change their opinion of you mid-sentence. And it's all like trying to attach themselves to you if you're popular that week. It was just complete bullshit, you know. And I knew it was bullshit, but I didn't expect to have to deal with it on that. On that, but it was. It was like they expected you to be wonderful, you know. You had to act like a star, and I'm very down to earth, mm -hmm. so I would just give them the truth, and uh, you know, it doesn't really work. But I was very uncomfortable with it. That's fascinating. I mean, I guess be careful what you wish for syndrome, huh? I mean, because yeah. you want to succeed, you want to be yeah. able to. Be I can't. I, you know, I can't. I can't. I was thinking about it before. I mean, why you? What do you wish for when you want to be a success? I mean, I want to make great, great records, but the other thing that comes with it is kind of anti-art. People have an expectation that you're going to keep repeating yourself for the next twenty years. They and, weren't missing you over and over, right? Yeah, and I got that. But then again, I thought immediately once I was number one, I'd, I'd tick that box. No matter what happened, I'd been number one in America as a solo and I'd earned my stripes. And I, you know, whatever I did after that, it didn't matter. I could make a country and western record. I was, you know, there was a Tina Turner record called Tina, Tina Turner Goes Country or something. There's beautiful country songs on it. <laughs> and, you know, um, people did things like that. It was just wonderful to me. And I wanted to follow that path. I didn't want to be predictable. So when you, um, when you get that big, and it's certainly not overnight, you've put your time in. I mean, you've yeah. got a lot of miles under your belt, a lot of great songs. Um, did it? Did you get a chance to connect with other artists at that point? You know, yeah. what was it like for you to, to? I'm sure there were artists that you always wanted to get to know or get to meet that now were intrigued by you based on what you would accomplish as a solo. Yeah, artist. no, that was that always. Happened. Were there a number of people like who, who jumps out at you when you think back? Well, um, Barry Hay from Golden Earring. You know, I think he was the uh, Golden Earring were obviously very, very aware of the babies because I mean I was a big fan of them and. I knew that they liked the babies and, and I got to know Barry Hay sort of peripherally, like for emails and stuff. That was interesting because I, I really loved his lyrics. I really had a lot of respect for him. I got to jam with Townsend before I made the No Breaks album at Trax. And I got to jam with Steve Marriott at Trax. Trax uh, was a great place. Oh man, I got thrown out of there. What did you do to get thrown I, out? Well, my wife came over to meet to spend the weekend and, um, and we were down there watching a band and this guy kept coming up to my wife and sort of getting hold of her. And I leaned over and said, hey, you know, she's with me. And um, he just kept coming back and doing it again. And I actually thought for a split second, what would Keith Richards do? So I hit this guy as hard as I could in the head. And it was mayhem. It was like, um, it's like the New York Dolls, you know, and the bouncers jumped in and pulled us apart. They threw me up against a wall. And he's and, he, and apparently he was notorious in that club. He was some famous son of whatever. And he was up against the wall and said, hey, look, you know, I'm fine. Leave me alone. That's my wife. And they let me go. And I hit him in the head again. And I think I broke his nose. Oh, shit. And then they carried me upstairs and threw me onto the pavement. <laughs> was that your last time at Drax? No. Um, they let me back in. I was, you know, it's... Um, uh, but, but that was the kind of the Wild West aspect of, you know, of New York. 
And it was cool too. Nobody was going to pull out a knife or a gun. That had yet to come, you know. It was stable. People had some brains at that point. It was amusing and funny, and it was just living full out, you know. But uh, it just reminds me of that uh, Robert Crumb cartoons when you see somebody get a kick in the ass and they're sort of midair, you know. That was me outside tracks. <laughs> you, you, so you jam with towns and you're having these experiences. You're for all of the um, nonsense and artificial expectation of fame you're still there still are opportunities that obviously are valuable that make you appreciate what you're going through because it's probably hard to describe what going through that is like you know yeah i mean it's there's really nothing like it in the universe probably no it's um it's an extraordinary thing i look back at my life now and it's all out of sequence there are some periods where it seems like it's five years ago and then there are things that happened 30 years ago that seem like they happened yesterday. Some of it's illuminated and very vivid, and some of it is just in transition to the next post, you know. But uh, there's a point, you know, where you just want to disappear to a farm in England and just, you know, pant. I'm not sure how much longer, especially with the pandemic. I'm not, you know, I mean, how can you, I mean, we talked before about having no input. But I woke up this morning with a song in my head and I've written some lyrics down. I'm going to write it. But at the same time, without an audience, there's going to be a point where it just wears out. You know, you move to poetry or or you move to prose. You know, the thing about a song is that you're trying to speak to people in a very broad way, but with something that's hidden inside it. Mm. You know, and uh, it's not easy. And um, at some point, there's somebody that, that does it just as well as you do. I mean, I think a lot of the talent in Nashville is kind of writing in a style that I thought I was writing in. And, um, you know, people overtake you and then you come up with something else. You can't repeat yourself. That's the important thing. Well, some, some can, but you choose not to, which I think is an important distinction. There's artists that I think try and replicate success, oh, right? Yeah, man, if it makes money. forward. If it makes money, they, that's, they're encouraged to do that, too. Right. That's, again, about the music business. But um, I think being a painter, going to art school for four years, I remember a teacher telling me not to repeat myself. He says, never do the same thing twice. And um, one of those great old boozy, uh, authentic elderly actors in Britain uh, it's like one of those, like Alec Guinness or one of those guys. Zero tool kind of guy. Yeah, but there's another guy that was an elderly guy that was in uh, Shape of Things to Come. Um, it was it was a real character. He had a motorcycle and a parrot on his shoulder, but he said, never pop out of the same hole twice. And I thought that was great, you know, and I have no interest in it. It's such a, uh, it's like death. You know, just keep making the same thing over and over again. It astounds me that people go go for it, but they do. John, let's talk about your Wooden Heart series. The way of you can reinvent certain songs and reinterpret things. What's that series been like for you? Talk, talk to me about the inspiration behind I it. I always wanted to make an acoustic record, but in the 80s, everybody and their dog was making acoustic records. Right. You know, everybody. Bands that shouldn't be allowed near an acoustic <laughs> to make an acoustic records. And finally, it all slowed down. And um, I'd moved to Nashville, really. I was just, I just wanted to be around people that played the acoustic first rather than the telecaster. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going country. I, just, I was interested in the sonic value of that beautiful thing. That it was my first guitar, you know. And um, I, I, I had four songs. I had two Richard Thompson songs that I really wanted to cut mm-hmm. and two original songs. And Shane Fontaine came down to the studio. It's about four years ago. And we couldn't. And I was going to sit down and get Shane to play some licks I'd written and continue to cut six more songs. And he had to go. He says, I'm sorry, I've got to go. I've got, you know. And so I only had four songs. And so it was an EP. I put it out anyway. Wooden Heart Volume 1. Right. And then about two years ago, I went back. We did a lot of gigs that were kind of semi-unplugged with a drum right. kit, electric bass, electric guitar. Music. Really cool shows. Really yeah. cool shows. You could stop a rock song and then do an acoustic song like Bluebird Cafe or Downtown. And it was just bring the house down. 
And it was dramatic. It was like theater almost, but extremely personal and revealing. And it was just honest. And that kept me coming back. And so I got really into it. And I, I cut like six or seven songs from my past, like Isn't It Time and Missing You and all that stuff and put them on. Then I realized I had four or five things uh, that I'd cut acoustically or whatever from way in the past, from Temple Bar and When You Were Mine. I put, added those. So it was become an anthology. And so I had volume one and volume two. And then in the pandemic, I became so uh, up against it with boredom and just uh, ennui. I was just like completely banging my head against a wall, thinking I was going to write and not being able to because I wasn't meeting people. Mm -hmm. So I went back in the studio about um, six weeks ago and started cutting tracks. And I was trying to make an electric acoustic record and the electric tracks, I couldn't get them to tick. Wow. I, I just couldn't feel it because it just seemed like it'd been done before. But every time I went to the acoustic, it, it just, it was like, wow, you know, there you are. It's like meeting an old friend or a girl looks at you across the room and you go like, who are you? You know, it was that something that was so right. I, I just followed that path, scrapped the electric songs and wound up cutting like five or six songs for this volume three, then putting the whole thing out as one album. Uh, Not dark yet, Bob Dylan, you know, a song that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, it's stuff that isn't easy, you know. If it's easy, it generally you're coasting. If something's looking you dead in the eyes and it's like, you know, you have to. No, I get that. You you look for challenges. It's very clear that you're not one to take the easy road. You're looking for the conflict, the bumps in the road, and the things yeah. that shape you as an artist, right? Yeah, that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from anything easy, you know. Well, I think, again, I think it's a it's a terrific project that allows you, again, to come up with new things, to reinvent old things, and to really kind of take stock of your yeah. musical soul and tap into things that influenced you and inspired you. And, you know, when you talk about Richard Thompson and Dylan, it's got to be fun to delve into those as well and unpack, find what they were doing. I, that's got to be very exciting for you. I, it really is, you know. I mean, uh, talking about Lancaster University, I saw Fairport Convention play. Oh, you did? With, uh. with Sandy Denny. <laughs> you saw some yeah. great shows. Oh, man, you wouldn't believe it. I saw Free twice, once with Tetsu and once with Andy Fraser. I mean, you know, when they were really, really, I mean, just. An another underappreciated band. I mean, not oh. as much as Family, however, but I mean, people know Free. But oh, Free? Oh, Free were they? No, that was it. I mean, that was it. I mean, if there's any production value in, in their records, it's it's EQ and the tiniest bit of reverb. They just played and recorded. And that's what I produce. That's all I do. I don't start coming in with like bird calls in the in the chorus and and this and why don't we fuck it up by doing this? It's like the performance, the humanity of it. It's an existential rave. You know, there's something that has to be uh, like a cry, you know, it's the blues. but. You know, that coupled with my folk roots and country roots, whatever, that becomes a, a more of a rock thing, I suppose. I don't know. I'm making it up as I go along, especially the last two sentences, you know. Well, but but again, you're open to, to new influences. And, and again, I think sometimes artists are afraid to explore things that don't fit the expectation of what they're supposed to be. Yeah, but in England, I was just thinking this morning when I woke up, um, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, you know, you, you just look, you go to like, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, there's Georgie at the organ on top of the pops. That's what I say. I say, yeah, yeah. And in the evening, when the sun will go down, I say, yeah, yeah. Fucking hell, it's jazz. But nobody re remembers that, like with family and, um, Pop music had an element of jazz in it. But like when you saw Deep Purple, I saw them at Lancaster. And they had the guy in the old Ian Lord, and he's right. jazz chords. And, you know, young kids of 15 are going like, yeah, man, you know. And he's like, you know, and it's like, um, you forget the influence of that. And it was all over Jack Bruce. Songs for a tailor, you know, it's like jazz. And, uh, and even going back to Van Morrison, you know, the moment it's Gloria 
and baby please don't you know baby please don't go and then he's is is jazz completely in the jazz moment you know uh and then that gets disregarded it's like people forget it's well it all comes from someplace i mean honestly if you play i don't know how far earliest blues that you listen to but if you go way back you know you hear the foundation of everything you know what i mean oh man if you I mean, herbert sunlin if you uh, muddy waters guitar player if you listen to to, to hubert sunlin he's playing muddy's at the front uh and howling wolf fucking hell howling wolf that's what i meant to say in muddy waters howling wolf is just like this big bruising lead belly figure just dangerous motherfucker you know dangerous and uh hubert's in the back with like some shitty electric guitar with like 12 knobs on it and he's playing all this stuff and you're listening to this stuff and just about every led zeppelin song you can imagine goes through at some point mm -hmm. you know and jimmy page has been very uh, aware of that and <laughs> gone back in you know that's what jimmy does but you'd be surprised how brilliant hubert sumlin brilliant brilliant when he died the rolling stones mick and keith paid for his headstone wow yeah he was that big and like you the, remember hendrix, like the hendrix of his time he was the hendrix of his time the stones Stop were always it. very good you yeah. probably remember when like brian jones insisted that helen wolf had to appear on certain like a tv yeah. show right he had to be co-billed or they yeah. wouldn't perform yeah he was very conscious about giving yeah artists do yeah. things like that so did you get a chance in all your travels around the states would you visit landmarks blues landmarks jazz almost were, were you into oh, the history yeah. of music like what were places sun studio uh, places like that yeah no uh, the first thing i did when i got to memphis was hit sun studio and it was like uh i mean it's, you know sun studio uh when i was in nashville working alison krauss organized a personal tour of the ryman and uh and I ended up playing the Opry, but I mean, it was like to be backstage and see the old beat up piano to uh, that circle of wood that's on the stage. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I mean, wow. And they had Hank Williams uh, suit jacket under a, a glass case with a cigarette burn in the lapel. You know, it was like there were things that were just uh, that was, you know, it's a funny thing to say, but it was like going to church. And it is a church, but uh, the whole thing, I saw Dylan play there once mm. and it was just, you know, staggering, but you know, these landmarks, uh, you know, it's like CBGB's it's like, uh, going to the marquee club in London, all roads lead somehow into the same past and future experience. I think when you go to chess records in Chicago and you go to muddy Watersburg, oh, place, Northdown too. Yeah. You know, yeah. all, all the places. I actually wrote a book all about rock and roll landmarks around the country. It was just hundreds of them. You can start with Buddy Holly's plane crash. You can go to where he played his last show and the phone is still there at the surf ballroom that he called his wife. All, you know, little, you connect the dots of, of, of events like that. Yeah. And, um, but I, I think your passion for, uh, for that kind of history as well. I mean, it's really, uh, you're a great storyteller, John. And I think your, your reverie of, of the past like that is probably what has made you such a special artist yourself. Well, you right. know, forsake where it comes from, you know? Well, you know, I mean, um, you know what it is? It's when you realize how good somebody else is, mm. you know? I mean, I've all, I said one night in the, in the bottom line, that uh, who wrote Leaves of Grass? Uh, Robert Frost. No, 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 um, the civil war. No, 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 what am I thinking? Um, I give me a second. Give me a second. I don't know. I might have a copy. Um, Walt Whitman. Whitman. I'm sorry. Bro. Yeah. But I was doing this poetry night, sort of singing a song kind of thing in the bottom line. And I remember they asked me a few questions from the audience. And I said that Walt Whitman's, you know, I sing the body electric or whatever, um, was as, I mean, Hank Williams, I'm so lonesome I could cry, was as important as as American authentic literature, you know? And it's simplistic and it's hillbilly in a lot of ways. And But when Hank turned around to look at the camera, he was really a fucking monster. You know, he was a giant. And I didn't differentiate between Walt Whitman and Hank Williams. 
Hmm. And I know it's a big thing to say, and maybe it's a challenge to people to go, but if you're a singer, you know, he lonesome whippoorwill, he sounds too blue to fly. You know, wow. Listen, profound. No, I think you're exactly right, though. But how could you? De- how could anyone deny the fact that Williams, as a poet, Dylan, as a poet, Woody Guthrie, as a poet, are are equally as important as as conventional poets? I mean, what they're yeah, writing. That's, poet- that's a questionable thing because once you put music behind something, you're putting a D minor chord or an A minor chord or an A major behind a word, which gives it another character. True. You're painting. You're putting the the overcoat on the, on the word. Whereas poetry is just the sound of the word. And if you read poetry, uh, it, it really has, it's like walking a tightrope. No, you're right. Maybe there's, maybe it exists within the realm of beat poetry where there began to be some sort yeah. of percussive Ginsburg. thing behind it. Yeah. Some fr- sonic framework yeah. just to paint against. You know what I yeah. mean? No, that's good. That's good. I saw, I saw uh, Kerouac on the, uh, who's that guy? Alan. The, Alan. The, the, the TV show that he used to have, he played the piano. Steve, Steve Allen. Steve, and, and Kerouac comes out, he's very shy and self-conscious. And Steve Allen's playing these chords, he's good too. You know, he's, he's very good. Yeah, playing these lovely chords. And the camera shifts to Kerouac, and Kerouac just goes off. And he's, not, he's no longer self-conscious. He's this beautiful human being talking about America and the wind. Mm. You know everything, you know, and and there it is. That's that's like it, poetry becomes music then. But I, uh, you know, I I used to think it was. You, know, you look at Dylan, and you know, you have to say, "Fucking hell, that's poetry, isn't it?" But is it? I I I'm I'm in two minds with that. I am. I really am. I can see both sides. John, this has been a wonderful conversation, man. I could talk to you all day. You have a you have a great restless artistic heart that loves oh, to. God bless you. Yeah, um, thank you. I enjoy talking to you too. I mean, smart questions. I mean, it's like uh, it's like talking about Ivan and then talking about like uh, Abel Gans and Napoleon and Arto and all that. I mean, it, it's all it's all like, it's like Patti Smith. You know, you read Patti Smith. Well, I was going to bring her up. When you talk about poetry becoming music, she was really one of the great architects of the modern era, semi-modern era in the early seventies of making that work of taking translating yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Lenny on guitar just she and Lenny and that it grew out of that yeah good call good. it's very rare but if you read any of her books she's a oh, book yeah, I love her books I mean Jesus Christ I've just started reading um Jean Genet because of her and it's a tough read man I mean um Fred Sonic Smith just couldn't do it her ex-husband uh, right. he's you know one five yeah yeah and uh, but she's truly authentic i met her once and um she'd worked with ivan he wrote dancing barefoot with her and stuff yeah. and um and i got a message to her um after I, she was very sweet and she had, had kids with her and um i said could you sign something for me and we had this mutual friend and she sent me a copy of seventh heaven like one of the first runs of, i mean i've wow. got it around the don't move Okay. <laughs> John is pro going to pick up his copy. I think the signed copy of Take this. See. And she sent this to me. Oh, look, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's signed and uh, to oh. John with all best wishes, Patty. How fantastic. Uh, it's just, you know, things like that, you know, and she, you know, I, when I first got to New York, I had a, a copy of um, Babel and, um, you know, the ziggurat thing, you know, and uh, and I read that. I've always been aware of Patty, but she, the books are so authentic. I mean, I think she's a natural poet, a natural writer on a profound level. I mean, she really is. If you wanted to talk poetry or authors with somebody, you'd have to bone up. I mean, she knows just about everything about writing, and she's a terrific, I mean, just a spellbinding I mean, just a really beautiful person, you know. I want to thank John Waite for that terrific conversation. If you'd like to follow John, you can do so at johnwaiteworldwide.com. Check him out. Check out the new collection, Wooden Heart, Volumes 1 to 3. I'm Chris Epting. I want to thank you for listening to The Moment today. And thanks to John Waite. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. 
Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.